Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Blog Talk Radio. Liberal Fix is brought to you by Blue Push Media, news important to progressives and liberals across America. Good evening and welcome to this edition of Liberal Fix Radio. Um, We are back on the air. This will be the first edition under the Trump presidency, so maybe I shouldn't have prefaced it with good evening, but it is evening and we're going to try to make it good by um, preparing for day one of the resistance to the Trump administration and, um, you know, hopefully less than four years to go. Um, so um, I'm your host, Keith Breckis, broadcasting from Montana. I've returned here after spending much of last year working on campaigns in both Nevada and Arizona, um, at least here temporarily, although I'll probably be back in the field doing stuff real soon um, and have been working um coordinating with some campaigns even as we speak. But uh, tonight our focus will probably be on the Trump inauguration and his cabinet picks and what kind of action we can take in the days ahead to resist the Trump administration. I am also joined by my co-host, Naomi, in California. How are you doing this evening, Naomi? Hey, Keith. I'm doing fine, thanks. Um, I tried to stay uh, away from the TV and got most of my updates this uh, on today's uh, inauguration on um, social media, but I I tried not to watch it. It just wasn't something I could <laughs> I could do. Although I did want to try and catch um, President Obama leaving uh, the White House, but I just I didn't get a chance to to watch that part. So I'm just catching up here and there with bits and pieces. Sure, and uh, like you, I didn't actually watch the inauguration i thought it would be a little too painful but i did watch a few excerpts from it and uh so i guess i'm probably up to speed on some of the highlights or lowlights if you will um so without further ado i guess we can talk about uh being in trump's america and i want to welcome our listeners back i know it's been a while since we've done this show so we might be a little rusty but there's certainly a lot to, to talk about um Obviously, um, today, uh, Trump was inaugurated the 45th president of the United States. Um, And, you know, what we can expect in the days ahead, I think, is pretty unclear. There's a lot of unpredictability in a Trump administration. But one thing that I think is clear is that the person we saw on the campaign trail is the same person we saw give the inauguration address today. I don't understand why there's apologists in the media um and i probably do understand why there's apologists in the republican party but i don't understand why they won't put country before party but i keep hearing how oh the presidency paul ryan said the presidency would moderate his temperament and 
and things like that. Well, the presidency isn't going to change Donald Trump. Donald Trump's going to change the presidency if we don't stop him. And so the idea that he somehow, after 70 years of being a spoiled narcissist, who just got his way, by the way, over the last year, I mean, he's got everything wanted, that he's somehow going to change his behavior to placate the rest of us or to start behaving differently, I think is um, that's, that's a level of delusion that I don't think any of us should entertain. There's nothing to suggest that Trump isn't going to be exactly what we've seen over the last year. Your thoughts on that, Naomi? Well, I agree. Um, I think that he basically did the bait and switch. Um, I don't see anything honest about him. I think he's basically campaigned on uh, what he was going to do and how he how he would make things great. Nothing was... Um, nothing in his campaign was a, a, a talked about a team effort or things that we can do as a country or things that you unite us as citizens or, or things that, that uh, ran true with president Obama's uh, themes. And then certainly uh, with Hillary Clinton um, about unite being united and we're in this together and, you know, we're stronger together and there's hope um, we can, you know, yes, we can. And none of that was present. Um, so, you know he he pretty much showed his true colors um and and then now he's you know maybe reneging on a couple of things or uh you know the lock her up that's not going to come to fruition um i really doubt that the wall is going to be built and if it if it does get pushed through it's going to take a very long time it's going to be extremely costly um so these are all things that he ran on and um you know maybe people voted for him based on their anger or their displeasure with the way things were currently running, but if they thought he would change his stripes, uh, they were mis uh, misinformed by not only him, but um, you know whoever else was they were listening to and, and whatever information they were reading, because he's certainly not going to change the way he is. He is who he is, and like you said, he's got seventy plus years of of being. Um, uh, a narcissist and, and, and getting everything that he wants. Um, so uh, that's basically, I think, what we're in for for the next four years. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that's absolutely the case. And I think there's, yeah, no reason to suggest that um, that anything positive is going to come out of this. I think uh, it's pretty clear where he's headed. I think his speech today continued on the same divisive path path rather than a unifying one and so he's still talking to his base I mean sometimes it feels like he's still campaigning and even at the inauguration today while he was somewhat um, gracious to the Clintons I think in the post inauguration thing or some of the usual you know where you have to acknowledge your opponent but there were people yell lock, it, lock her up still at the thing like as if you know as if it's still campaign season I mean that's inappropriate during the campaign but it seems even more out of place now after the heat of a campaign. and that, but, but even his inaugural address, I kind of wanted to, um, I thought maybe, uh, I don't often get to quote George Will because he's a conservative and I seldom agree with him, but I, I thought he had a good take on Trump's inauguration today. Um, George Will, this is a quote from him, 20 minutes into his presidency, Donald Trump, who is always claiming to have made or to be about to make astonishing history, had done so. Living down to expectations, he had delivered the most dreadful inaugural address in history. Um, and I think that's pretty fair. It started off 
with the invocation of the uh, Islamophobic, homophobic preacher who didn't necessarily bring those things up, but made a, a point of being snarky about God isn't against building walls. And then Trump proceeded to talk about America first. And um, for those of us who study history, the American cringeworthy slogan to begin with, because that was actually the America First Committee, was the group of fascist or neo uh not neo at the time, fascist or Nazi sympathizers like Charles Lindbergh who wanted the U.S. not to get involved or do anything about Germany, but to let basically let Hitler have his way. Um, and on American soil, of course, they were nativist and anti-immigration and isolationist and all those other things. So when I hear Trump say America first, and I think of his Make America Great Again slogan, I think, oh my gosh, his idea of America Great Again is, is the 1930s opponents to FDR was, was what he's harking back to. And how long is it till we go back to the other wonderful things like restrictive covenants, Jim Crow, and uh, the Great Depression? I mean, um, I'm not really looking forward to going back to the 1930s, but uh, that seems to be where Trump and, and maybe some of his supporters unwittingly uh, want to head this country in that direction. And I should note, too, in terms of uh, for working class people, one of the very first things Trump did uh, as president is is reversed uh, a, a program that Obama had put in place to reduce the cost of for first-time home buyers, the FED FHA mortgage fee cut. So um, the first thing uh, Trump did, or one of the very first things he did, was increase the cost of buying a new home for middle class and working class Americans. So a real man of the people there. Um, do you have any thoughts on the uh, inauguration itself, uh, Naomi, or, or, or other things about the Trump administration coming in that um, you like that? Well, we just have an hour, right? <laughs> I, yes. <laughs> I, 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 I'm, I'm trying. Yeah, I'm. I'm trying not to um, be incredibly uh, pessimistic, but I, I don't feel hopeful at all. I do agree with you that uh, he's taking us back uh, when he says "Make America First or "Make America Great." I think his definition of what what's really America. Um, and what makes our country great is different from the majority of us, or at least uh, I think I can safely say the majority of us. Um, you know, he's right away saying we're going to put Americans first by buying only American, making only things here in America. And yet, you know, his daughters still have their items uh, that they promote, his MAGA, his Make America Great Again hats, and his own clothing line is, made in China, as is his daughter's shoes and, and clothing line, also made in China. Um, it's just hypocrisy at its best. Um, and, and his America is not is definitely not our America uh, because, you know, his cabinet, like you pointed out, you know, you and I have been talking about this earlier, it's what, like 88% white, and then there's another over 80% it's white males? I mean, there, there's no diversity um, except for maybe three, which is Ben Carson and um, McConnell's wife, and the, I can't remember the other one that, that you had mentioned. That's but that's not <laughs> right. That's right. And and those aren't that those aren't what make you know. It's not a good diverse picture. Uh, a, a good picture of a diverse America. I mean, it, it speaks volumes 
of what type of uh, cabinet administration he's putting together and and where their um where their allegiance is you know his allegiance is to the billionaire donors his allegiance is to fellow uh, uh, b- businessmen and people that make wheel, you know, make the wheels, the deals, and 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 move wheels in foreign countries, um, with no thought to, like you said, the middle class, um, you know, that are putting kids through college, trying to buy a house, save for retirement, um, you know, have medical bills. The real life that happens does not affect him. Um, it's very, it's very telling the candidates that we've had who grew up privileged versus the candidates that had to work their way up um, and, and, and take care of their own bills. Um, it's, you know, it's very telling how they feel, you know, versus, and how they treat middle-class, lower-class America versus how uh, they are drawn and, you know, they, they support and take care of their own which is the top one percent? Absolutely, and I, I think the cabinet is is a good point. Um, and I'll come back to something you said earlier as well after that. But as you pointed out, uh, Trump's cabinet appointees, and if you count Trump and Pence in there, like you said, eighty-eight percent white, eighty-eight percent male, eighty-two percent white male, and then of course the ones that aren't white men are Mitch McConnell's wife, uh, Elaine Chao, uh, Betsy DeVos who's a millionaire or a multimillionaire based on Amway money, basically. <laughs> and then uh, that she inherited. And then um, uh, the one other person that I, ben, now I'm, ben now I'm having my Rick Perry moment. <laughs> oh, Ben Carson. Oh, Ben Carson. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. And Ben Carson. Yeah. So, um, and then uh, in the cabinet, uh, there's six billionaires, but no Latinos. Um, so, I mean, that, that's, Kind of goes with what Trump campaign. I mean, his his negativity towards um, Mexican immigrants or towards the Mexican judge kind of translates into the fact that uh, he also didn't put any Latino or Hispanic people from another country of of Spanish origin. Um, so that's revealing. And then I I think going back to what you said earlier about um, uh, Trump's inauguration speech, the one thing, like, there was no we message or not much one. It was always, I alone can fix it. I, 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 me, 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 I'm going to be your savior, which which is kind of scary because that sort of dictatorial mentality is very opposite than the same, than, say, Barack Obama's, yes, we can, or, you know, Bernie Sanders, we can do it, or Howard Dean, we have the power. I mean, any kind of, if you look at, uh, candidates who kind of consider themselves as just a public servant or one of many, and you compare that to a candidate who sees himself as the only person who can fix the problem. That That's very dangerous um, mentality, I think. And, and Trump's uh, inauguration speech, I saw vacillated between two really almost bipolar sort of between uh, – his apocalyptic vision of what America is. I don't know if he's looking at the same country, but he talked about stop, you know, riddle with crime and all that, even though um, the crime rate spiked up a little bit this year from last year, but it's still about half of what it was 20 years ago um, in the 1990s, or even half of what it was during the Reagan years in the eighties or the seventies. So, I mean, you know, there's obviously problems 
in places, but the idea that America is in this horrible shambles, you know, that this is some kind of apocalyptic country where where we need to change everything to fix it, that, that isn't the country I'm looking at. I mean, I know the, the American people I run into for the most part, are pretty good people. I, I don't like the way some of them voted, but I don't. I don't feel unsafe walking down the street of any town in this country that I've been to recently, whether it's big cities or, or rural areas. I mean, it's it's um, there's some things that need to be changed, but it isn't the America he describes. And and then between that, saying how bad how bad everything was, the other thing that struck me is the grandiose promises he made. Like I'm not going to ever let any of you down and and um, you know we're gonna we're gonna wipe out terrorism. I mean, I mean, at some point, people may call him to account for his promises because I'm not sure that he can do everything that he said he can do. I'm not sure anybody could. I mean, the promises there don't really fit with the programs he's advocating. Um, but even even if he had good programs, which he doesn't. Um, I don't think you can promise everything that he's promising, but yet somehow his true blue believers just um, want to think the best of him. So they, they don't, uh, nobody seems to hold him accountable, but I don't know how long the con game can last now that he's actually in the White House. Because talk is cheap, but now he has to act and he has to deliver on those promises. So he can, um, at some point, there's going to be a reckoning if he can't uh, even come close to fulfilling the things he says. Your thoughts on that, Naomi? Well, I'm I'm equating or looking at his trying to read his his mind or kind of see the the direction that he's going in, and he is you know the the owner of the Trump Corporation. Um, that is his big you know that's his that's his baby, and that's what he has built himself on is the Trump uh, Corporation and everything else around him has been uh, an offshoot of that, whether it be, you know, his, uh, his other businesses in other countries or other, you know, other uh, offshoots that he's done um, in this country and his TV show, et cetera. But he's, he's had, he's been the, the main shot caller. Well, now he isn't the main shot caller. I mean, he, he may think he has more power than he does. Um, you know, he he does have people that he has to turn to and say, you know, is this okay to do or can I do this or where are we at this point um, for this situation? Um, and he's not used to doing that. So I think one of – that will be a very telling um, point in his first uh, first 100 days of his presidency um, is how he – how flexible he is or how soon he realizes that he's not the main shot caller. He can't just walk around and start screaming and slamming doors, screaming your fire down the hallways. Um, we have a democracy, and he's not our king. Um, he's not the CEO. We're not a business. Um, and I know that sounds elementary, but I, I truly think he goes into anything he does with that mentality. I'm in charge. No one's going to tell me no. Um, I'm, I can get away with this because it's mine, you know, and if you don't like it, you're fired or I'm not going to pay you or, you know, just, just very dismissive of any type of, um, repercussions or consequences. And I believe that he will learn very quickly that he will have pushback. 
um, you don't just get to storm around the hallways and, you know, dictate what you want to do and scream and yell when it doesn't happen. That's just not the way uh, the presidency works. Um, I wanted to touch really quickly, just um, maybe we can chat for a little bit, if not now and, you know, later if you want to talk about a different point, but his kind of leading into that is his um, his cabinet is so in over their heads. <laughs> I mean, the one that's really striking me, that's really hitting me hard to the core is Betsy DeVos. Um, and I was just getting through that when then we have to, we see about Rick Perry, who was as a presidential candidate saying that he was going to eliminate the Department of Energy. Uh, these people are completely clueless about what they're supposed to do about their job description. So I think it's going to be the blind leading the blind. He has no one in there who has any idea of um, what they're supposed to be doing and, and, and how things have been done. And they're being, they've been done, you know, for the, this day for many years for a reason. Um, so we'll see what happens when there's conflict. Um, we'll see how well he handles different opinions and when he has to have briefings and, and his, you know, whatever Monday morning meetings with his staff, we'll see how that goes. Yeah, his cabinet choices um, leave a lot to be desired, to say the least. I think, um, um, and I guess in fairness to Rick Perry, I think energy was the one he actually forgot to mention. <laughs> yes. <laughs> of the three. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe that was a Freudian slip. He knew he'd be appointed to that. No, but I mean, yeah, I mean, he's in charge of an agency he wanted to uh, get rid of, and it's almost by design. Uh, Ronald Reagan did this back in the 80s, too, where the people appointed to the post, it's almost like they're ironic posts, or they're appointed to destroy the agency they're supposed to run. So it's like a misnomer, right, like, like Betsy yeah, DeVos, like the, Secretary of Education. If you were trying to destroy education in America, you couldn't have a better pick. Um, yeah, they're, they're they're out basically to dismantle and just completely demolish the 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 department as we all know it and how and as it's been functioning for many years. Um, it it just seems it's so it's very frustrating. It seems I don't want to use the word unfair because that sounds juvenile, but it it just it it just is so frustrating to see like PBS or like the national park system or, you know, something just the, the EPA can just be completely disregarded and erased as we know it in just a matter of, you know, days or just a matter of a, of a bill being signed. It's just very frustrating to see the possibility that how much our country will, will change in a very short time. Yeah, and the EPA is another good example. Scott Pruitt, uh, Trump's nominee for the EPA director, spent most of the last uh, decade suing the EPA to try to get out of complying with uh, sensible environmental regulations. So another obviously really bad choice for that agency. I think you look at Rex Tillerson, Secretary of State, very controversial. If anybody doesn't get confirmed, he might be the one, but I don't know if Marco Rubio or John McCain or Lindsey Graham are going to have enough spine to vote against him. I think they're going to uh, 
fluff their feathers up and say, oh, no, you're not tough enough on Russia. And then when it comes down to vote, uh, like a lot of the Republicans in the House and Senate, they're going to put party before country and they're going to fall in line like a bunch of sycophants and, and say, oh, well, we got the White House now. Uh, Trump will get better eventually, so I guess we'll we'll pass all his nominees, even the ones we think might be a risk. Um, so that's going to be a problem. And I think you can look all the way down the board, the appointments. I mean, the labor secretary is, is a guy who's hostile to the minimum wage and hostile to labor rights. Uh, uh, Treasury Secretary is a guy loaded with cash is probably going to send us back into the, the policies that helped uh, crash the economy in 2008. So, I mean, there isn't much um, to be hopeful about in his cabinet appointments. And I should point out, um, as we'll probably get to the half-hour intermission here soon, but uh, there were actually already votes on cabinet uh, positions today. And Sadly enough, the Democrats didn't do much to block them, although in fairness, the ones that were passed through today are not the most controversial picks. They're kind of, if you think of the range of possibilities of people that Trump would put forward, I think some of the Democrats reason that um, if we reject this pick, the next one could be even worse. So, for example, uh, Mattis was confirmed as Secretary of Defense today on a almost unanimous 98-1 to vote. Um, Kirsten Gillibrand uh, was the lone dissenting vote there. So good for her. I think she's going to fight every single one of the Trump nominees. And, and um, you know, somebody needs to do that. So I, I appreciate that. I'm paying attention. And, you know, if if, uh, if she's looking to run a campaign in 2020, I've taken notice. Um, a few other uh, uh, people that I noticed voted Homeland Security, for example, John Kelly was confirmed by an 88 to 11 vote, but the 11 that voted against him, I think it's a pretty meaningful list of people that also um, will probably be leading the way in the Senate and fighting the Trump agenda. It includes uh, Richard Blumenthal from Connecticut, Cory Booker from New Jersey, uh, newly elected Catherine Cortez Masto from Nevada, uh, Gillibrand, Gillibrand again, of course, um, Kamala Harris, who was just elected in California. And then both senators from New Mexico, Martin Heinrich and Tom Udall. And then uh, Jeff Merkley from Oregon, Chris Van Hollen from Maryland, Elizabeth Warren from Massachusetts, and Ron Wyden from Oregon. And then on the uh, CIA director, Mike Pompeo, there were eight Democrats that voted not to, um, not for the motion to proceed. He's still got a have a vote on appointment, but these are probably the eight people that are likely to vote vote against appointing him. And again, it was Blumenthal again, Booker again, Gillibrand again, Merkley again, Udall from New Mexico again, Elizabeth Warren and Ron Wyden, and the other one there was uh, Bernie Sanders from Vermont also voted against that. So um, that list of names kind of gives you an idea of maybe which senators will be at the forefront of resisting Trump, and uh, we'll see what happens on some of the more controversial votes. I think, uh, for example, Betsy DeVos, she may get 40, 45, or hopefully 50 or more, but uh, votes against her. I know one of my own senators here in Montana, uh, John Tester, is committed to voting against her, saying she's trying to destroy public education. She's putting private education first. I think he's absolutely correct on that, and he's not going to vote to support her. Um, your thoughts on the cabinet uh, nominees? Um, well, or I guess you already shared some of that. I'm sorry. 
that's okay. I I wouldn't add other than what you you know to to what you stated. I would just add only that I hope that our uh, Democratic senators step up and unite and really at least make uh, a dent. You know, at, le- at least make it make their voices heard um, and not for the sense of just being um, you know with with any kind of malice but really these are not thoughtful uh, people for the for the position these are people that are big big donors billionaires uh, friends of friends of friends people like I said before that already are making deals in other countries or run in his circle um, they're people that are completely polar opposite of what the department stands for. Um, they are the worst possible picks that we could have. Um, so I really hope that uh, the Democrats step up, and um, we need to we need to keep on our senators. And even if they're, you know, like I'm I'm fortunate enough to have Diane Feinstein and uh, Kamala Harris, but I'm going to continue to. Um, you know, reach out to them and, and urge their um, continued, um, you know, their their argument against the the nominations, um, and just continue ask them to continue to stand strong against these because these aren't thoughtful picks at all. These are people that wrote big checks that run in the same circle that he does and um, have absolutely no clue what the job entails. Um, it's it's extremely um, not just frustrating, but it, it is scary. There's there's a lot at stake here. So I, I would just echo what you said and, and just hope that our uh, senators step up and unify um, together. I think that it'll make a point. I know it'll be lost on the Republicans and on the Trump supporters that, you know, we're whining and we're, we lost and we're still, you know, fussing about it. But it goes deeper than that. It's it's really um, the... the uh, magnitude of what we stand to lose is huge um, and it'll resonate far beyond just uh, through the nomination process I mean just what they can what they'll be able to do as that secretary um, is extremely scary and, and worrisome absolutely and um, for those of you who just joined us we're about half past the hour we are talking about the Trump inauguration and the Trump presidency that is now a reality unfortunately it feels like a bad dream but uh, the time has arrived and he is our president we'll also uh, towards the end of the hour talk about resistance and the women's march um, and some other uh, things related to that um, I did want to uh, mention that uh, President Trump well, it's hard to say that, but uh, uh, President Trump did uh, pass some executive orders today, um, and of course they're kind of what you'd expect. One of them was to weaken the Affordable Care Act, and I think the other one was to put a freeze on all new government regulations. And I think they're also freezing hiring for federal agencies, all that kind of stuff, you know, the anti-government blah, blah, blah stuff. Um, but you know, so obviously we're headed in the wrong direction, and it's it's only going to get worse from here. I mean, this is just day one. Um, going back to, I guess, in addition to the Senate, I guess we should mention in the U.S. House that about uh, over 70 representatives intensely boycotted the 
inauguration. Um, we should be proud of those reps for standing up and doing that. Um, California, of course, was heavily represented in that. Um, but uh, I think maybe what was most interesting to me, I didn't get the entire roll call of who boycotted, so I don't know if there was anybody from the district that Trump actually carried that boycotted. But I do know that um, uh, Pete DeFazio, whose district only went by Trump, only went for Clinton by one-tenth of a percent, 46.1 to 46, was one of the people who boycotted the inauguration, as did his Arizona colleague, Kurt Schrader, also in a district that Clinton barely carried over Trump by, I think, like three and a half or so points. So um, I'm proud of all those reps for doing that, but I think those two deserve at least some recognition for doing so at some political risk to themselves, at least currently. I mean, maybe in two years, it looks like, you know, they were thinking ahead because uh, Trump may be very unpopular by 2018, um, even in their districts. But uh, you kind of expect that. And then, of course, um, of course, the representatives in districts that overwhelmingly went for Hillary Clinton, um, all, I think all of them boycotted the inauguration. And, and I think a lot of people maybe don't realize that there are entire congressional districts in this country where Donald Trump got less than 7% of the vote. I think in in the Bronx, where Jose Serrano is the congressman, Trump got 4.9%. Um, so um, there is nowhere where the Democrats' congressional district, I think, are worth showing. Uh, I don't know what Clinton's was, but Obama's worth showing two years ago was 18% in a district. So um, Trump had at least a dozen, maybe two dozen districts where he did worse than that, quite a few where he was in single digits. Um, so um, there are definitely parts of the country where Trump is already persona non grata, and so those Congress people are stepping up and acknowledging now, whether it's Barbara Lee in California or Jose Serrano and Adriano Espelot in uh, New York. I mean, those people in those urban districts where people don't care for Trump are standing up and saying, um, I'm not going to be a part of this, or I will fulfill my constitutional responsibilities, but I'm not going to celebrate this. And I think that's a reasonable position to take, given Trump's toxic rhetoric and his his um, desire to do things that are, are frankly un-American or at least uh, violate our ideals. I can't say that America hasn't violated them before, but I mean, um, being in favor of, toward favor of having a Muslim registry, being in favor of mass deportations, um, being a sexual predator, all those kind of things uh, are reasons not to uh, not to just sort of normalize this presidency. And uh, your thoughts on any of that, Naomi, in terms of uh, uh, the members of the House standing up to the Trump presidency, or where you where you think um, there's hope in that? Well, I I was torn because I did not want this uh, president president to be and his behavior to be normalized. I I did agree that this is just not acceptable um, behavior. That he you know he certainly was hasn't been acting presidential by any means. Um, but I you know it's you know fifty percent of one and fifty percent of the other. I can completely appreciate uh, President Clinton and um, Secretary Clinton going to the inauguration as a previous president and 
former first lady. I can't imagine how difficult it was for her to go. I can't even imagine the magnitude of her strength to sit and be a part of that inauguration. I, she has more strength and she's a better person than I because if I had to sit there through that, I would have had to be heavily sedated or, you know, <laughs> something that, you know, something would really have to be pumped heavily through my body to get me to sit there as calmly and as graciously as she did. But then on the other hand, you think, okay, so you don't agree with them and you don't appreciate, you know, him as a, as a politician, as, as your president, but what, what, where do you go from now? You know, where do you go from here? Because of course there's the other side of the coin where the Congress people that did not attend um, have to face their constituents that are going to call them out on it. And also the other side of the aisle, you know, knows who wasn't there. Um, I don't know. Do they care? Maybe they don't. Maybe it's better, you know, where they don't really care if they were there or not. Um, I, I appreciate them standing for what they think is right, of course. Um, but, you know, I don't know. It's, it was a t- it's a tough call. You At the end, you have to decide what's, what you feel is best in your gut for you. Um, so I do applaud those, you know, that didn't that didn't go on on uh, with their intent. I'm sure it was, you know, with intent where I, I, we can't sit through this, but we don't agree with this, and he's just such you know such a horrible person. But on the other hand, he is the president now. Um, I know that hashtag not my president is floating around, and it's it, you know it's it's all over the place. But like Rachel Maddow said, I mean, whether you like her or not, it's what she said is factual. We only have one president in this country, so he is our president. Um, we don't have to respect him. Um, and I know there's several that don't, and I don't respect him. I respect the office. I respect what it stands for. I appreciate the office and that we have a democracy. But do I respect him? No, I do not. But is he the president of our country? Yes, he is. We only have one, and he's it. So, um, you know, I I understand the difficulty Um I I don't know. I hope they don't face backlash for not attending. I I'm I'm glad it was a large number. Had it been five, maybe it would have be it'd be a different story. Be you know it was it was what did you say about seventy that did, that didn't attend? Yeah, so over a, seventy was that's the a last bigger, I that's saw. A, yeah. That's a bigger number, so that makes more of an impression. I just uh, I don't know. It it was hard. I didn't watch it. You know, I I made my call to not watch it, not support him that way. So. Yeah, it's just yeah, it's just I, a I tough it's just a, a tough situation all the way around. Yeah, and I think it's worth noting too that structurally members of the house are kind of a little freer to do what they want. They usually represent more distinctly partisan districts. I mean, that's kind of why we have a house and a senate. The house is a little closer to the people, so they tend on both the right and left, you can get more people that are more ideologically extreme in the House. And I think that's a good thing in some ways because it gives people a chance to, you know, maybe a progressive rep like Keith Ellison in Minneapolis wouldn't win a statewide race, but he can represent Minneapolis. And, and same with maybe Barbara Lee in California or Robin Kelly in Illinois. Some of them could win a statewide race maybe, but, I mean, they certainly do a good job of representing their district which are very partisan and very anti-Trump. So they're in a different position than, say, a senator, president, or somebody who has to 
appeal to a larger base. And it goes the same way on the right. I mean, you can have some real extreme nuts in the House, and unfortunately sometimes they make it into the Senate too, like Ted Cruz. But, I mean, it's a different structural position. So I think people in the House, it's easier for them to make a statement. And I think there will be people that criticize, for example, Barack Obama for attending or Hillary Clinton or ex-presidents like Bill Clinton and George Bush. But I think when you talk about democracy and the peaceful transition of power, I think to that extent, um, the the outgoing president kind of has to be there. I mean, otherwise, you know, right. I mean, we can't right. have a coup. We can't overthrow Trump. We cannot have a military coup or a bloody revolution. We can do all kinds of things to push him out nonviolently or to hold him to the fire until he quits, you know, has a tantrum and goes home. Or we can impeach him if we can find impeachable offenses. But I think, I think it's fair for the outgoing president to follow protocol and be there. And I think it's fair for the Clintons to be there for the same reason. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna second guess anybody who did or did not go. I think there's good arguments for both choices. But I, I do think it's also no accident that all 70 plus people that didn't show up are members of the House, not the Senate, because they're somehow in a structurally better position to do that, which isn't to say would it wouldn't have been cool if Kamala Harris or somebody else had decided they weren't going to go, but I mean, it's everybody's individual choice, and I, I don't think um, it's a deal breaker either way. I don't think we should shun people who didn't show up, and I don't think we should ostracize those who did. I think it's an individual <laughs> choice, and there's defensible arguments both ways. And I guess oh, I, um, with I, I, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just gonna say I, I agree. I think that uh, that they, you know, you have to make your own choice and you have to move forward from it. And yeah, but, but you know, we have to have President Obama there because that's part of the whole peaceful transition of power. I mean, that's that's the big uh, that's the big link. That's why we are democracy and we vote. We don't just, you know, have a bloody war against each other. We have this peaceful transition of power and that's the whole pomp and circumstance of meeting the outgoing and the ingoing of the White House and the riding together to the inauguration and, you know, everybody's just very peaceful and happy and it's a kumbaya moment for, you know, that little pocket of time. Um, that's just part of what makes us, uh, you know, a great country. Um, that passing of the of the leadership roles, um, um, so yeah, we we have to have we have to have some type of of um, continuity in that. But yes, there is room absolutely for those for those that disagree, and and they should be, um, you know, like you said, they shouldn't be ostracized for it. It's it's their their way of stating their opinion, <laughs> just you know, like how the rest of us are, like the like the march the women's march that's going to be taking place tomorrow, which I yeah, understand. Yeah, we should talk about that. <laughs> yeah, we have, a lo- we, have a lot of, we have a lot of friends that have been on Liberal Fix uh, with us as guests and that will be heading out or have already left uh, that will be in Washington tomorrow for the women's march. Um, I'm sure it will be a much larger group and crowd than what, witnessed the inauguration and the parade today. Um, and then we also have uh, the sister marches that are all over the country, um, major cities, smaller cities, just women getting together, women and men, children, everybody getting together to uh, state their dissatisfaction with what 
is happening in our country, what can happen, and just banding together and uh, saying, you know, we're standing for women's rights, for LGBT rights, for um, our gun uh, sense legislation. We're, you know, pushing for the EPA for, you know, not to not disregard climate control, climate, uh, um, climate change, and things like that that are important to us, all of us, um, to not be disregarded and diluted by this presidency. Absolutely, and I think um, did I understand correctly that Dan Bimrose and and his wife Lindsay are going to go to Washington D.C. Yes, they are, they left today with their daughters to meet family and be a part of the march. Very cool. Yeah. So um, obviously, a huge march in D.C. And like Naomi said, sister marches all over the country. A great place to go and show your solidarity with your fellow. Um, fellow and and Americans that are opposed to the Trump administration. Um, They're mostly women's marches, but obviously men are welcome as well uh, in solidarity. And I I know the one in Montana is expecting at least 4,000 people. That isn't large compared to what the big cities uh, have around the country, but it's not bad given Montana's conservative lean and its uh, um, small size in terms of population. And the one in Los Angeles, I understand, is expecting at least 70,000 in the rain, and, and it may go quite a bit higher than that. Um, so all over the country, marches, I think it's a great place for people to protest, uh, make their voices heard, um, uh, coordinate with other people, um, have solidarity. It's really important in times like this to be around like-minded people, just to feel that connection. Um, and, and then, uh, you know, going forward, of course, um, I think we have to work both outside and within the existing political structure. So it's very important. I think direct action has a place and a time. And I also think we can't forget to mobilize for the midterms and throw some of these uh, people in the Republican Party out. Any of Trump's enablers in the House or Senate, any of his apologists, they need to be voted out in two years. It can't just be about the presidency in four because if we keep these knuckleheads in Congress like McConnell and Paul Ryan that are doing Trump's bidding, um, we're going to be in the same spot um, for for four years. If we, if we can throw some of them out and get Democrats, good Democrats especially, back in charge of the House and Senate, we can really put the brakes on Trump's agenda, maybe even initiate impeachment hearings if it's appropriate and get them out before 2020. And at the very least, if we can take over some governorships Flip some state legislatures, get things in line. We can we can be in charge of redistricting 2020, so we can reverse the Republican gerrymandering that made a a lot of Republican control possible. I don't think a lot of people realize that, even though Democrats are a House and Senate minority, that they got the majority of the votes in House and Senate races over the last several years. Um, not every time in the House, but I mean, the current Senate. Um, most of the votes of who who's in the Senate, there's more votes for Democrats than Republicans, but because Democratic votes are poorly distributed in the sense that they're heavily concentrated in big cities and in places like California and New York, the Republicans are overrepresented because of places like Wyoming and Nebraska with small populations where they get equal Senate representation. But, of course, um, we can't necessarily in a short amount of time, change the way the system operates. But what we can do is make sure that when elections roll around, that we're in a position not just 
in the traditional Democratic strongholds, but that we're targeting Republicans in places where they're not used to being targeted before, especially the ones that are trending our way, some of those suburban districts in Georgia, um, places like Orange County, where there's Republican Congress people still, even though Hillary Clinton creations on one hand, but also electoral politics on the other, and not just at the presidential level, but up and down the ticket, every thing from waterboard and school board up, because that's how the Tea Party built their little mini empire, if you will. Um, so we have a lot of work to do there. Um, one thing I wanted to say, too, on protests is um, I think it's important that when people go out, it's easy to get caught up in the moment, but let's try to make sure as protesters, as we protest the Trump agenda, that what we're doing is constructive or productive or will help our cause. Um, I don't want to see like sort of ego-driven window smashing just for the sake of doing that because it doesn't play well in terms of taking the moral high ground and it's I, I don't think it's a very effective strategy. That isn't to say there aren't situations where um, things may need to escalate for certain situations, but I certainly don't think the day after the inauguration going and knocking out some windows is going to win over the hearts and minds of American people. I mean, they're on our side right now, so let's try to continue to mobilize the majority of this country that's against Trump rather than trying to sort of uh, pursue narrow agendas at demonstrations where we marginalize ourselves that that isn't a good effective long-term uh counter strategy to trump um your thoughts on uh protests or the march and other things Naomi? i think that's very important that we remember that uh as hopeless or as defeated as we feel uh we shouldn't feel that there isn't anything we can do and we certainly shouldn't wait for 2020 um like you stated earlier 2018 is going to be right around the corner. We have so much to do right now. We have to vet out candidates. We have to find candidates who are serious, who are uh, you know, winnable candidates, uh, pursue them, show them our support, uh, start with fundraising, start with getting out you know, for their name recognition, um, whatever we can do to get uh, candidates out front and center right now is what we should be working on. Um, it's it's not enough for us to just sit back and say, oh well, we'll just wait and see who runs and see what you know. We'll just see how this plays out. It's in our hands. Um, the ball is now in our court, so to speak. Uh, Trump is in uh, the White House. As um, crazy as that sounded, and as you know, impossible as it seemed that it would ever happen, it's there. It that this is where we are now, and so we have to arm ourselves and give ourselves the tools that we need to get people into the House and the Senate who will stand up and, and fight for us, um, people who will be, who have been servants, who have been grassroots uh, organizers, or who have been working behind the scenes. Now they need to step out in, in front and, uh, and, and, and show leadership in our party. You know, one thing that's kind of tough I'll just speak from my area real quickly. We don't really have a deep Democratic bench, and that's tough because we have maybe one person who ran for Congress, and then we don't hear from them again. We have one person that ran for the state or for state assembly, and they lost, and then they're gone. We need to, to really dig deep and find candidates. There's got to be more than one. 
we have to form our team. We have to get our bench ready so that when we're ready to go, we have people that we can count on, people that are ready, people who are willing to commit to our ideologies and get uh, get out there and get the votes. Um, when Democrats vote, we win, but we don't vote midterms because we get kind of complacent. We're we're tired from what we just came off of, but we can't afford to take two years off. This is the most important time right now. So we have to start from the ground up, whether it's a school board election, like you mentioned, or a city council race, a mayor's race. Those all count. Uh, Those are all uh, people that will run to be our state senators, to be our state assembly representatives, who will be our congressional reps. Um, you know, those are people that are, are going to lead us. And so we need to be out there looking and educating ourselves on who is out there. And if there isn't anybody, we need to go find people. We need to recruit. Um, that's just what you do. Um, so there's a lot of things to do between now and, and 2018. There's plenty to do for, for everybody. Um, we can't sit and go, oh, well, we'll just you know, wait and see how everything plays out. And we certainly can't afford to be tired. We can take a breath here and there, but we've got to power through this. Um, the reality now is that he is in, in the Oval, Oval Office and he's got a lot of people behind him that I don't even know if the Republican Party wants him to even be a good president. I don't even, I don't even know that they care if he's a good president. I think they just want to dismantle everything that President Obama pushed through. I don't even think that they necessarily think he's going to be a great leader for their party. I mean, that may sound crazy, but I don't even think that they really care. I think what they care about is that they have a Republican, they have the majority, and they're going to just knock down this house of cards. Um, so we've got to get out there and get people that are ready to, to, to fight back uh, and fight with us. Absolutely. And, uh, I think it's interesting, too. Uh, uh, one thing I noticed today that I had never known before, but um, in Senator John Tester, the Democrat's letter about um, or statement about not approving Betsy DeVos, he mentioned himself as a former school board member. So I looked it up, and his political career started. He actually used to be a music teacher in addition to being a farmer. But he, he was uh, on the big Sandy, Montana school board. So now he's U.S. Senator. So I think it's important um, to think. I mean, that's how you build your bench. Sometimes these offices that people ignore on the election tap, you're building the farm team for, for um, I guess it's a sports analogy, but you're building the farm team for the Democratic Party. I mean, you got to start somewhere. And so these elections right. are important. And there's no doubt right. that the right-wing ideologues have, have tried to stop school boards and and uh, and make that happen. Um, we actually have a caller calling in, so I'll see. We only have about five minutes left, but perhaps they have a question. We'll we'll find out. Um, hey, hey, this is Keith. Is this a caller or perhaps just a listener? If you wanted to make a live comment, um, you're on the air. Well, I'll do my best. Um, I agree with the last person, the the young woman, I didn't catch her name, that was speaking. Yes, of course, we have to glove up for the midterms. There's no doubt about that. But there are more immediate things that are happening. You know, uh, sure. That's also true. Trump went, when Trump took the oath of office, he was an automatic violation of the Emoluments Clause of the Constitution. 
Okay, there are investigations going on right now. There are um, ethics panels that are that are filing complaints right now. I I don't see Trump lasting very long. Again, as the last uh, person talking said, uh, I don't know that the Republicans actually want Trump. What they want is someone who will glad hand and and sign what Ryan and McConnell want. I, I don't know that they're going to get that in Trump. I really don't. I think that Pence is probably a better bet. So I don't think he's going to last long. I really don't. He's got, you know, he is in violation of the Constitution. And that's going to reach a point where Ryan can't can't politically afford to ignore it. Um, people are already screaming about the ACA, to, and and Republican Congress people are avoiding going to town hall meetings because of it, because they know they're going to get a face full of this. And you know, Donald Trump is going to find out very quickly how limited the powers of an unpopular president are and that he's being steered in places that maybe he doesn't want to go. Maybe he's too stupid to understand it, but I think he has uh, either pride or egomania enough to maybe try and put a stop to a couple of things. I'm not giving him any credit. Um, That could happen. But I think they'd be happier with Pence. So I don't think Trump um, is going to be there for very long, basically. Yeah, that may very well be correct, because I think there's a couple possibilities that, that um, could happen. I think at this stage, Ryan and, and McConnell and stuff are being good soldiers for Trump, but I agree with you. I think they'd rather have uh, Mike Pence in there, because Mike Pence is a clear, consistent sort of conservative ideologue. He'd be their kind well, yeah, of guy. Yeah, he's a robot. The guy, I mean, yeah, well, the guy Trump is a loose cannon. They don't know what to expect from him. I mean, he, he may go off and try to pass a trillion-dollar infrastructure bill, you know? <laughs> so, or something so, like that. Yeah, Mike Pence, yeah. when he talks, you expect styrofoam to fall out of his mouth. I mean, you know, he's <laughs> he's a religious zealot moron. Of course, we know this. He thinks the Earth is less than 10,000 years old. He thinks the universe is less than 10,000 years old. I mean, okay, he's a dunce, but at least he understands the pace and workings of governance, unlike Donald Trump, which is why I think a Ryan or a McConnell would rather have him. Yeah, So, and I think there's a possibility then that the Republican Party will turn on Trump. I mean, we see that occasionally in state legislatures where Republican legislatures have impeached Republican governors because they got fed up with them. The other possibility, I think, is Trump could just get tired of being president and quit, sort of pull a Sarah Palin governor of Alaska. Oh, well, you know, <laughs> he's, he's used to having he's his so, way. I mean, so you know. deep. He's, under, he's so deep under his head. He has to look up to see down. He's so low, <laughs> you know, when it comes to. Uh, Things like basic knowledge of how governance works. I mean, the man is a farce. What happened today in Washington was a farce. Um, 
I'm saying I wish you well and safety to all the women that are going to be marching tomorrow. Good, good for you, but be safe. Wow, what the hell? They're all, they're all strong, capable people. I'm sure they can take care of it. But um, it's going to be interesting. It's already gotten interesting. You know, the the citizens for responsibility and ethics in Washington have filed a complaint about Trump being in violation of leases right the second he became president, um, talking about the emoluments clause of the U.S. Constitution, which he is in violation of. And there comes a point where even Orion can't politically afford to ignore some of this stuff. Yeah, right. I think that I, very well could be correct. Oh, go ahead, Naomi. No, I think I think he, the caller. Thank you for your call. You're spot on with it. Um, I, I I don't think that actually Trump will last that long. I I do think that they would completely embrace Pence. He's more of their speed, um, but they'll take Pence how they can. And right now he's attached to Trump. So to Trump, we'll yeah. How, well, we'll you guys how, have a great we'll night. Plays out. You guys have and a you great night. Well. Thank you, and thank you for uh, calling. I appreciate it. My name's Christopher. Call. I'm calling from New Mexico, and and it's nice to hear you guys. Thank, thank you, you so Christopher. Take care. And I want to so thank that, our listeners as well. Um, go ahead, Naomi. I'm sorry. No, we're just going to ask if that wrapped if that wrapped us up for tonight. We'll be back next Friday. Yep, we have reached the end of the hour. We're actually about a minute over, um, so it might cut off on the recording, but anybody listening live can still hear us. Um, and that was a good call by Christopher. I thought that might be him when I saw the 505 number, but I wasn't sure. Um, but uh, he's called maybe called Liberal Six once or twice before. Um, but anyways, uh, thank you uh, for all our listeners, and we will we do plan to be back next week. This may become a regular thing again uh, until we get locked down in a campaign where we can't uh, regal free on a Friday night, and then we'll still be going, doing good work too. But uh, but uh, definitely want to um, welcome everybody to day one of the resistance. Uh, we'll try to be here every step of the way, and uh, let's make sure that we make Trump's presidency a failed presidency, given that uh, the agenda that he's outlined is one that would be bad for America. So on that note, um, we'll see you all next week, and thank you again for tuning in. On behalf of Keith Breakfast, Naomi Minogue, and Dan Bimrose, everybody have a safe weekend. If you're out there marching, um, march proud, be proud, and uh, just stay safe. Have a good night, everyone.